All right. Okay. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get started, guys. Uh, we are a little, just a couple minutes past the top of the hour, so it's a good time to start. Uh, and uh, let's go ahead and open with prayer. Holy Father, thank you for giving us your word, giving us the message about uh, yourself and about your character, about your justice, about your love, and for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we uh, think through some aspects of your word tonight, that you would give us insight, help us to know how we can uh, know you better, how we can think uh, your thoughts after you, uh, perhaps even in ways that we haven't done before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, All right, guys. So uh, thanks for coming back. And for those of you who are new, thanks for coming at all. And uh, so last week was our first time. We're just kind of feeling out the time slot and trying to feel out our time. So we went a little bit longer than I was really supposed to last week. We're going to try to tighten it up a little bit. Um, but we're just going to, we're just going to, you know, crash through and see where we end up on the other side. Uh, and so also partially because of that, you see here that my outline says, uh, why does the future matter part two, which if you remember, was not supposed to be what we were talking about tonight, but we'll get it all sorted. Finish this one, and then uh, next time we'll be right on. I'm going to mention this right now, and then don't let me forget to mention it again at the end. But next week, I will not be here. Next week, I'm going to be in Calgary uh, for business. And so because of that, Pastor Nate said uh, everyone's free to come uh, because the children's thing is still happening. And uh, there'll just be a, a very low-key kind of a prayer meeting Uh, I think possibly he's leading that. Um, And then I'll be back uh, next week. So today's the 13th. I'll be back the 27th. And we'll have our third session then. Okay? Uh, First thing I want to mention is that uh, I do have a Google Classroom set up for this. So if you have kids who are in uh, the school system, you're, you're probably very familiar with this. But if you're not... Google Classroom is just a very convenient way to organize classroom materials. And even though this is not like a normal class class, there's uh, PowerPoints that I'm gonna be speaking from every time we have a session. Uh, there are, there's videos, which I'll link to. The first one, we only have audio, but maybe we'll have video this time, who knows? So if you wanna inflict that on yourself, it's there. I'll link to it. And then I'll also have supporting materials especially as we get into some of the special topics i will have there'll be you know graphics there'll be articles there'll be uh video series that i'm pulling from other places that are just extra materials if you're if you want to think more through a particular element that we're discussing i want to have those resources there for you to explore and this is a convenient way to organize it so uh, if you've never done this before, it's super easy. You can just you, you just open up internet, search for Google Classroom, go to whatever the top link is, and they'll ask you for a class code. This is the class code, right? You just put that in, and you put it in, and it'll add you to our class as a student, and then you'll be able to access it. Yeah, Jeff. So the first letter there is, is a lowercase. That's a lowercase O. Yeah, O three three. T2MI. All right. 
You don't have to do this if, if the, the very words Google Classroom fill you with paralyzing fear. Don't, don't be afraid, this is strictly value added. There's nothing that you need to do on there. This is just for, for your edification, God willing. Um, and so you, you're welcome to just keep showing up. Okay? Now, like I said at the beginning, what we're going to do every day is we're going to pray. We're going to try to recover some of what we talked about previously. And then we're going to jump in. So if this was like a real, like a dues paying class, we'd have a quiz. I love quizzes. But sadly, I'm disempowered to give quizzes. So instead, we'll just have a chat. So, But I do want to try to recover some of the key concepts that we talked about last time. If you weren't here last time, you're free to make wild guesses or try to just listen to your, your fellows here. So first thing, we talked about uh, four major elements. We're going to be exploring those. Four key elements of the biblical story of humanity. Uh, kind of four chapters. And I said some, some people have more than four, but I think these four are the really key ones. Who can recall what those are? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So creation was the first one. So the biblical story of humanity starts with God making human beings in this setting, in this world that we live in. And then the fall happens, biblically speaking, happens very shortly thereafter and has these massive far-reaching effects. And then the third one is redemption, which is where we'll pick it up tonight, right? And that is being put back together. Uh, and then whatever the fourth one is, does anyone recall what the fourth one is? Restoration. Uh, restoration. Yeah, restoration is the fourth one. So redemption is the beginning of God's saving work. And we'll talk more about that word in a minute. But restoration is the next one. Okay. Second question. This is an important question for us. We'll come back to it frequently uh, as we discuss certain elements of eschatology. But what specific role did God create humans to fill? God made humans and he gave them a job. What was that? Good. It was this caretaker of God's creation. So this is often expressed. Uh, people often use the word stewardship to describe this, which is a fine word. I just tend to try to avoid words that we don't frequently encounter outside of church uh, because I feel like that blunts their impact. So God made us as caretakers for his creation. He did not make us monks to spend our time praying and reflecting. Um, obviously, our relationship with him was present from the very moment of creation, but God had a specific role for humanity to fill. Um, and that as soon as human beings fell, uh, that specific role became corrupted. And we'll talk about that a bit more later. All right, yes? The verb I think of is subdue the earth, which which is, doesn't sound quite like caretaker. Yeah. It sounds passive to caretaker. Subdue is, sounds like a more active, um, uh, involved. Sure. Yeah, and so subdue is the King James translation word. Uh, the reason, and, and so people often sometimes talk about dominion, like having dominion over the earth. There's a whole branch of theology called dominion theology, uh, which is fine. That's fine too. The reason I don't particularly like subdue, again, is because... Here we all are speaking English in the year 2024. In 2024, subdue has an element of using force to overcome resistance. It's a word that we use for warfare or 
at least for like police actions, <laughs> right? Uh, but originally the concept is just exercising authority. And you remember in uh, Genesis 2, uh, God says that he puts the people in uh, Eden to dress it and keep it, is your King James phrase. And so there's, there's an aspect, uh, caretaker is not so much that it's passive, but it's like, here's this thing, the world, belongs to me. I want you guys to take care of it, maintain it, improve it, look after it. It's, it's that uh, the sense that the thing belongs to God and we're running it for him. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I don't want to belabor it Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and that, that'll be a key element as we go forward. Okay, and then third question, from Cain to the prophets, the Old Testament records repeated unsuccessful attempts to do what? We talked about this in different ways, but how, how would you kind of fill in that sentence from our discussion last time? Yeah. Okay, yeah, to save itself, that's a great way to put it. To reverse the fall, that's another way to put it. To solve its problems, that's a great way to put it. And so we saw how each of these key narrative movements that we encounter sequentially in the Old Testament represents, it can, in addition to everything else, we can understand it as an attempt to do something different to solve the problem of the fall, to solve man's alienation from the creation and from God. This will solve the problem. Okay, that didn't work. This will surely solve the problem. Oh, that made it way worse. This one will surely solve the problem. And, and at each stage, there's a new thing that's brought in that, that doesn't work. Okay? So this is kind of where we left it, right? Uh, I want to make sure we have this in our heads. We're going to start <clears throat> with, uh, we talked about creation. We talked about fall last time. And we're going to start here by just reflecting on some elements of redemption. First thing that I want us to make sure that we grab is that when we use the word redemption, or we could use the word salvation, that's a fine one. There's others that we could use as well. Part of this concept is the concept of getting something that's in a really bad way and making it better, right? This is what sets uh, the, this step, this step of redemption apart from everything else God does. So think about it this way. And, and this is like the really, really key element. God makes humanity. Humanity falls. At this moment, in terms of God being free to do what he wants to do, he has really two broad options. His first option is to do what he does, which we read about in the rest of the Bible. Broadly speaking, his second option is to do what I would imagine almost all of us would think of as the first and obvious choice, which is just to erase that disaster and start again, right? His second option is to nuke it from orbit, to sweep it out of existence, and to rebuild it. God was free to do that. He could have done that. That would have been totally within his rights because humanity had rebelled against him. They had already come under the curse of his just punishment. 
And so doing it that way, just shifting that whole project into the bin, that's, that was a thing that he was perfectly just and free to do. But he didn't. Instead, God decides that he is going to rebuild everything that has been made. And in a sense, it's really, we're going to see this later. It's not wrong to say that he intends to do that atom by atom. Which is quite a dramatic thought. Nothing is going to get blasted and restarted. Everything is going to be corrected. Uh, signs of that start really, really early on uh, in Genesis 3. And so last time we talked about how this sort of unfolds, this, this like narrative of the, the, um, the disaster of the fall, you know, things go bad very quickly, as from our perspective at least. It seems to happen very quickly. Certainly it happens in a, you know, a single complex act of sin where everything permanently goes astray. It's kind of like turning your wheel irrevocably. You are going to crash. It's just all unfolding from here. And so what we see in the rest of the Old Testament is this kind of like unfolding crash. It's flipping, it's rolling, it's bouncing, it's sliding. It's, there's another cliff underneath that cliff. Wow, it's on fire now, right? It just keeps going and going. That's what we talked about a bit last time. But we can also look at the Old Testament as unfolding God's redeeming purpose at the same time. So in all these bits, and we won't look at all the same bits, in all these bits, God's purpose of fixing everything is also evident. It starts at the very beginning when humanity sins, right? And, and uh, they... Uh, Adam and Eve are aware of their sin and they hide, right? What's the very first thing that happens? Somebody tell me. First thing that happens after human sin. What's that? Okay, and yes. And then what? And God comes and says, where are you? That's really significant. God knows where they are. Right? In this moment, God's very first action toward them is an action of reaching out. Right? It's an action of recovery. So it starts at the very beginning. And we're going to see this unfold in the same way across some very big moves throughout the Old Testament. So the first one, God creates a new relationship with people when he selects Abraham and his family. And let's, let's read this uh, passage here. So, Nick, can you read for us Genesis 12, first three verses in Genesis 12 there? We'll, we'll just try to spread these out a bit. The key element in this passage, because there's way too much to talk about all this, so I'm just trying to grab some key highlights, is that when God comes to Adam... And he makes these promises to him and to his family. Suddenly, in, in the experience of humanity, something becomes more clear. And what becomes more clear in the... I said Adam, I mean Abraham. What becomes more clear in the experience of Abraham is that the way forward out of this disaster that we're all living in is faith. 
And a lot of that is not well understood at this point, certainly. But that's very clear in the biblical text. How are we going to get out of this mess? It's going to be by believing what God says. So, can you read that for us, Nick? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That last part is the really key element in that passage. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because up until that moment, we might, you know, if if we are thinking along with Abraham, this is before his name was changed to Abraham, if we're thinking along with him, we might think, this is something great that God is doing for me. Just like God did something great for Noah, because Noah was righteous, God's doing a great thing for me. Nope, like with Noah, what God is doing with Abraham is something that is intended to belong to, to literally everyone. And it's going to happen this way. It's going to start start with Abraham. So faith appears as the way forward. You remember Genesis 15. It says that Abraham, the second time this promise comes to him, it says he believed God. And what does it say? That God, God counted it as righteousness to him. That's really significant because we've read a lot of unrighteousness up until that point. Okay. So here's our first big move. God chooses an individual and his family. And then secondly, he takes that family and he makes it into a nation that belongs to him. And if you've been in one of our Bible reading groups, you've noted how much the language of possession is used by God to describe these people, right? Like you're my people, you belong to me throughout all the families of the earth. I've chosen you that you would be mine, right? So God chooses this family and turns it into a nation. A nation, And in his relationship with them, as that relationship unfolds, the key moment in that, of course, is what? Think about this transformation of God relating to a guy and his family to God relating to an entire nation. What's the key moment in Israel's beginning? They, have, they come out of Egypt, there's the Exodus, and they're like, yay, we're all free. And now God is going to do something to express the nature of their relationship. What does he do? It's the giving of the law, right? So they come to this mountain, and they have this long period where God is going to describe to them, you belong to me, and as people who belong to me, this is how you're going to live. You're going to demonstrate our relationship through this huge law. Okay? And in that, in that moment, the nature, which is a long moment, but we just, you know, go with this moment still. Uh, in that experience, the nature of God becomes much clearer than it was uh, in his relationship to Abraham, right? So if you read, just read the sections on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God's nature, his specific, you know, what it was, what it is that he wants and does not want, not super sharp, it's not really in focus, but it becomes much clearer in the law. And particularly these two elements, his destructive holiness and his love. So somebody read for us this passage. 
Exodus 20, 4 to 6, really expresses both of them together. This is from the Ten Commandments, if you recognize the passage, Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, or that is under the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who be. Continue. All right, so we got both side by side here, right? Both of these are side by side. If you break the law, God says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to visit the consequences on you. And by the time they hear this, you remember they've already experienced the key element. They've already been at the foot of the mountain and they've heard and seen the, the terror of God's judgment in him on, on Egypt. And at this, when they're sitting at the bottom of the mountain, they're hearing God say to them, don't come up to the mountain, don't touch the mountain, you'll die, right? Do you remember that moment? What are, what are, what's their response? Well, that's later. What's their response at that moment? Yeah. That's exactly right. They are terrified. They're not like, it's not that dangerous. They're like, no one's going to the mountain. You go. You, Moses, talk to this scary God for us. We're going to stay far away. And it takes literally weeks, weeks of Moses being gone for them to start to really rethink this arrangement. Right? (coughs) So that's, that becomes much clearer. Here's God showing them, yes, I am terrifying and destructive in my purity, but then at the same time, in the same breath, he says, thousands of generations of love. This is his goal. That's, that seems like a very strange combination, but okay, I will go with that, I guess, right? So, that's the second move. Then God takes this nation and he focuses it into a kingdom. So what we had previously was a confederation of tribes that exists as a political unit. But God brings this to a much sharper point because now with the, the coming of the uh, dynasty of God's chosen rulers, now we have a leader a specific leader for the people and a specific leader who's, uh, you know, what we would call a political leader. That is, his goal is to direct everything that the people are doing in a general sense. Uh, we won't read all of Psalm 2, but somebody, does anybody have Psalm 2 open? Maybe you turned to it already. Yeah. So uh, read for us the back. I don't have the exact verse off the top of my head. Now therefore, O king, be wise. Yes, start from there. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. And pause. When he says, O kings, the psalm makes it clear that he's addressing all of humanity and its leaders, right? Continue. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. <coughs> Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Great. So God has this king that he's chosen and all around the discussion of David and his dynasty, there are these echoes of a greater king who's going to lead the people out of their difficulty because they obviously need a lot of leadership. This is one of the things that emerges very clearly from the Pentateuch and even more from Judges. The people are just really needing a lot of leadership. So here's, here's some of it, okay? And then in Jeremiah, we have these promises coming to a head. God promises to bring this nation and, and all the people who are trusting in him back to himself forever by doing something which has not been done previously, not just by giving the people more clarity, not just by giving the people better promises, but by correcting human nature, which has not previously been uh, accomplished. That's really the whole problem, is that human beings are broken. <clears throat> so we have just a few verses here. Who wants to read these for us? Somebody? Jeff, you got that one? Thank you. So here, as we we're, again, we're just reading through the Old Testament. And what we come to in this section is a clear promise to fix the essential problem. But you notice still off in the future, right? Something's going to happen. that's going to solve the problem of human nature. And then, of course, you turn your page. You're in the New Testament. And Jesus, the Messiah, appears. And you guys know that that word Christ, Christ is not a name, Christ is a title. It means the Messiah. And Messiah means the anointed one. And the anointed one means the guy that God picked to do the thing. Right? The chosen person. So Jesus, the most chosen person, is here and he closes the circle on everything that we've read so far. He's the link. He's the one that makes the circuit come on. Jesus is the son of Adam. And I, we won't take all the time. I'm just going to read these texts that I have here on the screen. He is, as the apostle Paul says, the last Adam. Or we could read that as the, the later Adam. The replacement Adam. Right? He is the one who comes to do what Adam messed up, and he's going to do it correctly. He is the new head of a rescued and restored human race. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, which means that all the promises made to Abraham are made to him. And the Apostle Paul writes about this in Galatians 3. He says, 
the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so Jesus comes. He's taken over the job from Adam. Jesus comes and he's inherited all the promises that were made to Abraham. Promises to bless the whole human race. Jesus comes and he has done that thing that looked totally impossible when it came down to Mount Sinai. That law relationship between God and his people. Jesus is the one who actually does it. Which is why he says here in John 8, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is not just a human being in the line of Adam, but he's one who comes all the way to the Mount Sinai. I mean, speaking metaphorically, it's like he gets this far in his journey as a human being and he gets the law and he keeps it. And Jesus is, of course, the descendant of David, right? So you guys remember in Acts 2, when uh, the Apostle Peter is preaching on that very first day, the day of Pentecost, right? Remember this? And he says, hey, here's David's tomb right here with us. And David's been dead for a long time. But God promised to do all these things for David's descendant. And let me tell you who that is. That's Jesus. That's Jesus, the Messiah. He's the one who inherits all these promises that God made to David, which we'll look at in more detail. We have the opportunity. And Jesus is himself the offering that starts the new covenant. So we just read this new covenant passage, right? Jeff just read it for us. And God says, I'm, I'm going to make this new agreement with you. I'm going to start this new relationship with you. I'm going to solve the human nature problem. How is that solved? Well, that covenant is made with a, an offering that kicks it off, that ushers it in. Jesus is the offering himself, which is why he says, and we read this every single time we have the Lord's table, which is why he says this cup that is poured out for you is the new agreement. It is the new covenant in my blood. He's the one in himself bringing in this new relationship and he is the one who survives this experience of offering himself and goes on to become the person who administrates the new relationship. It's, it's like, you can think about it this way, if, I, to just give a, an example or to shift the metaphor away from the biblical picture, but just try to help us, help us get it. It's like Jesus is sort of like the heroic soldier who sacrifices himself to rescue everybody. And then after he dies, he comes back again and he's not dead. And now he's going to be the governor to run the province that he's just rescued everybody in, right? That's, that's the rule that Jesus has. And that's why the apostle uh, who writes the book of Hebrews says, that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He's the one in between us and God. He's the one who's maintaining it, 
right? And bringing this good thing to us. Okay? Phew. That's a lot of stuff. That's the role of Jesus in the redemption. So what we're reading, when we're reading the Old Testament, is we're reading all these things. God says, all right, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to do something here. I'm going to do something here. I'm going to solve this. I'm going to address that. I'm going to fix that. That's really out of whack. And then in just this moment of time, it's, it's really in that way, very much like the fall. Remember how earlier I said the fall is kind of like that fatal twist of the wheel from which you cannot recover. And then you just spend, you know, the rest of the time watching the disaster unfold in very much in the same way. The coming of Jesus happens all at once. Like in one moment, the guy is just barely through the door and it's like, oh my goodness, look, oh wow. And he, look, he did this thing too. Everything just clicks in around him. And he is the person that redeems the whole complete disaster and puts it all back where it goes. But he does that slowly. He arrives very quickly. But the actual like restoration work, that part is not finished yet. It's on the way. It's in progress, right? That's our fourth bit. So you remember we had the, the four chapters, right? The creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right, so here we, we have these things coming one after another. Restoration is largely, not entirely, but largely in the future. So let's look at some of these elements that make up restoration. Jesus has uh, begun the critical work of rebuilding everything, like I said, atom by atom, person by person. What is it going to look like when he finishes that work? Because the Bible tells us the answer to that in broad strokes. The Bible tells us ahead of time. The first thing that's going to happen is that humanity experiences invincible life. And we're going to talk about this in more detail next time we meet. Because next time we meet, we're going to talk about theology of death. But the first big result is that the thing that God said... When you break my law, Adam and Eve, when you do that, you're certainly going to die. And they're like, mm, will we though? And then yes, that, no, it turns out, wow, we were so wrong for sure. We died. And so what's going to happen then is when Jesus comes, when he comes back to life, he begins the granting of life. That, that begins immediately. And when we get to the full restoration, everyone will be experiencing that. Everyone will be caught up to where Jesus is in that experience. Because where he is, is totally invincible life. That's why the apostle says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. He doesn't say, look, the new is coming. He says, look, the new has come. So it's right for us to think of this as being something that's already underway. But in another sense, we're looking forward to a future experience. If we have died with him, he says in 2 Timothy, 
we will also live with him. And so there's this future experience where what we're experiencing now is not Jesus' experience right now, but it will be. All that death will be undone. There'll be nothing left but life. That's true not only for us, that's also true for all the stuff that God told us to watch for him, right? So God makes this world and God takes his time making the world, right? We'll have some light over here. We'll have some water over here. We'll have some plants. We'll do some birds here, right? And God says, you guys take care of this for me. And it's like disaster. Everything's on fire. And it's, it's not a good situation. God is going to fix that too. God's intention is to get back the nice thing that he made. And so all of that is going to happen not only for uh, human beings, but also for the creation. We'll come back to this passage. We'll talk about it in more detail later. But in Revelation, John records, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Uh, all of the things that God have made live in a way that is analogous to the way that human beings live. They're no longer subject to decay and to destruction. Again, we'll talk about this more later when we have more time. Uh, God's kingdom is fully reestablished. So instead, you remember that in the fall, we said that human beings rebelled against God. So instead of saying, okay, God, you made all this stuff, we'll take care of it for you. They said, get lost, God. We're going to do our own thing. <coughs> we don't need you here. We don't need you interfering with us. That's going to be reversed. Turn over to Daniel 7. I'll read this passage for us. Whoops. Starting in verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. The horn is this enemy of God that he's seen. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So like a human being is what that means. A human being, someone like a human being comes and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. I just want to remind you guys, this was the plan. Right? This was the plan. Like God makes all the stuff and he puts human beings in charge of it. What are we seeing here in Daniel chapter 7? 
human being being put in charge of all the stuff. That's <laughs> fixed. And it says here, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The difference is here, this kingdom is one that is happening under the reign of God instead of in opposition to him, right? Humanity is itself fully reconciled to God in Christ. And there's this great uh, passage in 2 Corinthians 5 that God through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. What does that mean? Reconciled. It means that God and people were at odds with each other. They weren't talking to each other. Couldn't get along with each other. Couldn't, couldn't speak a peaceful word to each other. And Jesus has come from God to solve that problem. And that's the conclusion. That's what happens. That's what happens here in Revelation 5. We won't take the time to read that because we're already pressing against our time. But that's what happens in reconciliation uh, and in restoration. And that is where eschatology should fit in our minds. Eschatology, we can think of as the end of the story. It's the conclusion of this big, true story of God's saving acts in the world, or of the history of humanity. That's where it goes. And God tells it to us ahead of time. He tells us how it's going to work out ahead of time. There's one more thing, though, that I think is worth noticing. Uh, eschatology is the end of this story of humanity as we have it. But it's not, it's not the end of everything, right? You've got this map, and you can think of eschatology as being sort of this X where, you know, the, the line ends... But it's like this. It's like the line keeps going off the map. Like it goes farther. And this is something that I want us to just keep in the back of our minds as we go through these passages, as we go through these elements that we're going to, because we're going to be reading all over the scriptures in the weeks ahead. I want you to just keep this in the back of your mind as we go forward. The scriptures clearly present this one thing, that what we think of as eschatology uh, is in many ways, a conclusion. It's the conclusion of the human story. <clears throat> but it is in itself not at all a conclusion. It's an introduction to something that comes after that. Well, what's that? Well, we don't know. There are some passages that speak very, very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they point to shapes very far off in the distance and say, oh yeah, and we're doing that too. And the shapes are so indistinct that we can hardly make anything out about them. But they're certainly very impressive. Um, I, I really like the writer C.S. Lewis. In fact, I'm going to give you guys a reading uh, of something that he wrote at one point in this, uh, in this discussion, not today, but later on. And I think Lewis puts it really well. He has a series of books for children, actually, uh, called The Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you may have read that. And uh, in the last one, he is sort of grappling with this 
kind of human allegory, this kind of Christian allegory rather, uh, of the, the end of time. And he writes this, and I think this really captures it pretty well. This is the very end of the book, and they're talking to this lion who is sort of a, 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 a allegorical representation of Jesus, right? And it says, as he spoke, and this is the lion here, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this, uh, and for us, this is, sorry, I should say is, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is a seed that needs planting in our minds. That this is, as far as it goes, an accurate way of capturing the thought that the scripture presents us with. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I prefer not to say that eschatology is the study of last things, although that's also a biblical phraseology, the end times, the last days. These are, these are biblical phrases. Because sometimes we can have the idea that it means that we get to the end and then we're done. That's not right. It'd be much more accurate to say that we get to the end and then we start. And that's worth keeping in our minds because I think this preserves for us a key uh, part of the reality of belonging to our God. Because that's the kind of God that he is. He, he doesn't end. So, a few thoughts for us before we finish up. What, what good is eschatology? Why and why should we think about it? What, what practical good does it do us? Um, first, I want to suggest that eschatology is helpful because it provides for us, if we understand clearly what God has said about these things, it can provide for us peace instead of anxiety. Jesus in uh, John's gospel says, your heart must not be troubled. He's just told them uh, some very bad news that he is leaving real soon. And they're upset. That's the context in which he says this. Bad things are happening to them. They don't understand them. You ever been in a situation like that? Jesus says in that situation, your heart must not be troubled. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Brothers and sisters, this has not happened yet, right? The apostles hear this and they're like, okay, no, that's good. I should think about that. But for them, they're still waiting for this, the final elements of this to come together. They're with our Lord now. But the final receiving of all God's people hasn't happened. And, and it's in the future for us. And so that means we can be comforted by it in the same way that they were, right? You got problems in your life? Yeah, Jesus knows about that. You don't need to be anxious. Don't, 
let your heart be troubled. God is going to take care of you. That was the whole point of Jesus doing what he did. Or hope instead of despair. Despair is what can happen when we feel like things cannot possibly get better. Right? Things are bad. And really, there's no way that they can get better. This problem, this disaster, this suffering that I have experienced or I am experiencing, maybe the suffering of that moment will stop, but the pain and the scar will endure permanently. I am permanently a broken person. These are the kind of things that lead to despair. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Those are extreme words. Paul was not talking to people who were living some kind of a country club existence. And he says about people who were being chased out of their homes, who saw their friends and and family members turn against them, people who experienced having their loved ones tortured by the state, turned over to the state by their neighbors. That's the stuff he's talking about. He says, no comparison, not even, doesn't even bear it. And he says, now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience, or we eagerly expect it with patience. Hope instead of despair means that we expect, like Abraham did, that God is going to do the thing that he said he's going to do. And Paul says it is going to be so great that regardless of what you are experiencing right now, if you're saying, I can never recover from this, Paul says you are doing the math wrong. You're holding your paper upside down. It's the other way around. So big words. Patience instead of anger. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans writes, if possible on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's anger. That's what he means by his wrath. For it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. An understanding of what God is going to do in the future can give us the patience that we need when people do wrong to us. Somebody does something wrong to you and you're angry, that's justice. That's a sense of justice. But a Christian person is a person who commits justice to God. To take justice away from God and say, God is going to take too long to do this justice. I need to do it right now. This guy wronged me. And I have to, I have to write that. I have to balance the universe. There's something in that that's correct, but the problem is you don't do it. You give it to God. And so I can let, you know, I mean, hopefully not John, but I can let people continue to do wrong to me. 
legitimately, I can let people continue to do wrong to me. Not because I'm weak, not because I don't care about justice, because I am letting God do that because he told me to. Because I believe that that he actually will. God will actually do justice. Doctrine of the future strongly encourages us to godliness instead of worldliness. This is the apostle John writing and he says, so now little children remain in him so that when he appears, this is our future event, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So John says there's a great correction that will happen at that moment. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. John says, look, you know that God is doing something with you in your life. He has goals for you. And if you really believe that, then you are going to cooperate with those goals. When you stop thinking about that, when you put those goals that God has for you out of your mind and your attention floats down onto the moments that are right in front of you and you think, eh, you know, what difference does it make? John says, don't think that way. Now listen, God's going to do something great in your life. You belong to God. Think about that. You know, get started on that stuff. I mean, you know, you're not going to be accomplishing it yourself. But by doing this, you're showing that you believe that God's going to do this for you. And one more. Purpose instead of pointlessness. Life can be a very frustrating experience. And there can be moments when we feel like nothing that we do matters. There can be events that we experience where we feel like suddenly all the stuff that we've done up until that point has just been chucked in the bin. The apostle writes this, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible, that means this body that can be destroyed, that can rot away, will be, must be clothed with incorruptibility, with invincibility. So therefore, You're going to live again, Paul says. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because knowing that your labor in the Lord is not pointless. Paul says you're going to live, you're going to live forever. And that means that whatever you do, whatever you do for the Lord today or tomorrow or whatever you did before, doesn't matter what happened with those people. It doesn't matter what came of that. It doesn't matter that you thought it was going to be like X, but it actually turned out to be like Y, and you were just crushed with that disappointment. None of that was wasted, says Paul. None of it was wasted. All of that will find its place in the life that God is giving you in the future. All of that will be valuable. So we can continue to do work even when it seems like we're not seeing a big, a big result. I have a couple more things that I was going to say, but we are for sure out of time. So I will leave you with them instead. Go home if you want to think about this more and read Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26 is a great 
<clears throat> eschatological, <coughs> excuse me, a great eschatological passage, a great passage for putting together some of these truths in a way that can really inspire us to seek the Lord more. And uh, we won't sing any songs or anything like that. We'll just leave it there for tonight. Um, but next time, now that we've kind of got this overview, my hope is that we can start by looking at the theology of death. What does the Bible say about death? Um, what is death? Why does it happen? And uh, how does it happen? What is the experience of death? What does God teach us about that in his word? So uh, I'll see you guys next time. For that, please remember, once again, I will not be teaching a lesson next week um, because I'm not going to be here, but uh, Pastor Nate will be leading a prayer time. If you're here anyway, welcome to come. Everyone's welcome to come. It's good to pray so we can do that. All right, speaking of which, who wants to close us in prayer? Don't all raise your hands at once. Kevin, you're raising your hand? Yeah. You are? Good. Thank you. Pray. <clears throat> Father, we uh, thank you that we gather this evening together as brothers and sisters uh, going into your word. Lord, uh, learning about how you work. Uh, God, we just pray that um, as we can continue to study that uh, a little bit better prepare us as uh, believers to uh, walk um, as Christ walked in you. And God, uh, that we would not be unprepared, um, but we uh, pray that you would lead us Amen. All right, thanks for coming, guys. That's it. Now, uh, I'm happy to stay and answer questions. So if you got questions, feel free to hit me with them. But uh, everyone's free to leave at this point.